I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the 100th episode of this podcast. When I started doing this during the summer of 2020, I never thought I'd make it to 100 episodes. But here we are. I have no idea how many more I'll do, but for now, I'm going to keep plugging along. Since it's the 100th episode, I decided to choose an important event from 100 years ago. And honestly, I thought about doing this subject for Veterans Day this year, but when I realized it was 100 years ago, I decided it was perfect for my 100th episode. And since it's Christmas week, I didn't want to focus on anything too depressing like some big major disaster or something like that. Instead, I'm going to tell you about someone who received a great honor 100 years ago in 1921. In fact, it's an honor that is still being given. To me, this event is something special. I could have taken a headline from hundreds of papers all over the country. This event was a huge deal back then, but I chose to get our headline from the Standard Union out of Brooklyn, New York. The headline says, Nation's Nameless Hero Now Rests in Arlington. The 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918 marked the official end of World War I. Three years later, on November 11, 1921, today's featured date, the body of an unknown soldier from the war was buried beneath the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington, Virginia. I've visited the Tomb of the Unknown in Arlington, and I've watched the changing of the guard, and I knew it was special, but I don't think it ever occurred to me how the soldiers buried inside were chosen. Unfortunately, there have been many unidentified soldiers over the course of our country's history. Sometimes the dead were even buried in mass graves, or sometimes their injuries were so bad they were unrecognizable. And in some cases, they were buried, but records weren't correctly kept, or they were lost. Some estimates say that half of the deceased soldiers during the Civil War were never identified. For the families of the men who didn't return, not having closure must have been devastating. During World War I, those serving in the U.S. Army received little aluminum discs that are similar to today's dog tags. That disc, meant to be kept on the person, was supposed to help identify remains if the soldier happened to die. The U.S. lost around 100,000 people in that war. Bringing that many bodies back to U.S. soil was going to be an extremely difficult task, especially since some were still unidentified. Some families chose to have their dead loved ones buried at an American military cemetery overseas. In 1920, Great Britain and France both brought one of their dead servicemen back to their home countries to be buried. And in 1921, the United States decided to do the same. In October of that year, four different bodies of U.S. soldiers were exhumed from four different cemeteries in France. They were then taken to the city hall in a town in France where a selection ceremony was to take place. There, 
The caskets were each arranged on a shipping case, and Sergeant Edward F. Younger of Headquarters Company, 2nd Battalion, 50th Infantry, who was part of the American forces still in Germany, was selected to choose which of the remains would be sent back to the States to be reburied in the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington. He walked into the room where the caskets were being held, alone. He chose the third coffin from his right, placed a bouquet of red and white roses on it, saluted, and left the room. He later said, I couldn't bring myself to make a hasty choice. Something seemed to stop me each time I passed that third one's coffin. Something seemed to say, pick this one. After the body was selected, it was ceremoniously transported to the port and sent to the United States aboard the USS Olympia. Before it reached its final destination, the body was taken to Washington, D.C., where the unknown lay in state in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. Ninety thousand visitors came to pay their respects on November 10, 1921. Then, on November 11th, the body was taken by a horse-drawn caisson through Washington, D.C., across the Potomac River, and reburied in the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, meant to represent all of those who would not be coming home and could not be identified. That day, Americans all over the country observed two minutes of silence together in honor of the day and of the burial. The tomb is decorated with three wreaths on each side panel, and then on the front are three figures that represent peace, victory, and valor. The backside has the inscription, Here rests in honored glory an American soldier known but to God. Thirty-seven years after that first burial, more soldiers were buried in the tomb. One was chosen from the Pacific Theater of World War II, one from the European Theater, and one from the Philippines that died during the Korean War. All were chosen in a similar fashion to the first burial and given special ceremonies. When the Vietnam War ended, pressure was put on the government to, once again, add to the tomb. But thankfully, there weren't nearly as many unidentified remains during that war, and with technology changing as fast as it was, many people didn't think the remains would be a mystery for long. Still, in 1984, there was just one set of remains that were unidentified, and they were ceremoniously buried in the tomb. In May of 1998, the remains of the Vietnam unknown were positively identified as Air Force First Lieutenant Michael Joseph Blassie, and his body was moved to the National Cemetery in St. Louis, Missouri, at his family's request. During the early years of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, many people that visited the tomb didn't give it the respect it deserved. They would touch it, and feel it, and set things on it, and bring picnics to it, some were even known to climb on top and eat their picnic on top of the tomb. And some young couples were known to climb on top for a uh, makeout session. In 1937, a guard was permanently placed at the tomb to watch over it 24-7. Each person chosen to guard the tomb has to undergo intense training, and it's considered a great honor. Every step and movement the guard makes has meaning. Recently, the tomb has been making headlines again. Just two months ago, the old guard had their first all-female changing of the guard in 84 years of guarding the tomb. Then, on Veterans Day of this year, 
for the first time since 1948, people were allowed to go by the tomb. Many visitors took advantage of that and laid flowers and wreaths at the tomb. Now, as much as I'd like to keep telling you about the tomb, because it has a special place in my heart, I need to move on to our additional history stories. I'll post a video of the changing of the guard at the tomb in the additional history headlines you probably missed Facebook group, for those of you who haven't had the chance to watch it in person. But before I move on to stories that happened 100 years ago for this 100th episode, I want to close this off by sharing excerpts from the speech President Warren Harding gave at the dedication of the Tomb of the Unknown on November 11, 1921. He said, We are met today to pay the impersonal tribute. We know not whence he came, but only that his death marks him with the everlasting glory and an American dying for his country. He might have come from any one of millions of American homes. Some mother gave him in her love and tenderness, and with him her most cherished hopes. Hundreds of mothers are wondering today, finding a touch of solace in the possibility that the nation bows in grief over the body of one she bore to live and die, if need be, for the Republic. We do not know his station in life, because from every station came the patriotic response of the five millions. We do not know the eminence of his birth, but we do know the glory of his death. He died for his country, and greater devotion hath no man than this. He died unquestioning, uncomplaining, with faith in his heart and hope on his lips, that his country should triumph and civilization survive. For my first additional history story of the day, I'm taking an article from the Corsican Daily Sun out of Corsicana, Texas. This headline says, Todd found guilty, gets death penalty. As you can tell by the headline, this is a story about a murder. No surprise there, I cover murders all the time on this podcast. But this murder is a little more shocking than many of them. It wasn't done out of anger or jealousy, and it had nothing to do with a scorned ex-lover or anything along those lines. About two months before our article was published, a 26-year-old man named James McNeil went missing. He was a chauffeur for a living, but I don't believe he worked for just one family. Instead, I think he was just hired out on an as-needed basis. He was a newlywed and had only been married to his sweetheart for about a year. One day, a dairyman saw James's car parked near a bridge, but nobody was around and it seemed to be abandoned. He stopped to investigate and notified the police. Inside the car was a Palm Beach coat and some bloodstains. A pair of bloody Palm Beach pants were found near the car. The police had James's family and some co-workers, who he'd just barely seen right before he disappeared, describe what he'd been wearing that day. The description differed between his family and his co-workers, but both of them agreed that it was Palm Beach trousers. An immediate search of the vicinity began with authorities fearing that they would find Mr. McNeil murdered. They even began dredging a nearby stream to see if maybe his body had been thrown into the water. It didn't take very long for them to find James's body, tossed into a dry creek bed on the side of the road. Judging by the condition of the body, there was no question in anyone's mind 
that James had been murdered. They figured he'd been dead for somewhere between 10 and 12 hours when he was found. They also found at least two pairs of footprints in the mud leading away from the body. There was also a pocket knife with a wooden handle nearby. James's watch and about $100 in cash were missing. It seemed as if he'd been caught up in a robbery of some sort. By the very next day, police already had a suspect in custody. And why was the mysterious man a suspect? Well, the police found him with muddy shoes and blood-soaked underwear. The man, although not named, was a known dope addict, and the cops just made an assumption. They took his shoes and drove them to the site where the body had been found the day before to see if they would fit inside the footprints left at the scene. There was never any word in the newspaper as to the outcome of the cops' experiment, but I'm guessing the shoes didn't fit and they were forced to let the man go because a different person confessed to the crime and told everything. The one thing the articles I read didn't make very clear was how they found the suspect in the first place. But it doesn't matter because he was very forthcoming with every single detail. What was shocking was that it was a 14-year-old boy. His name was Forrest Dawson. He also ratted out the other two people involved in James McNeil's murder. They were Cecil Jensen and Wayne Todd, and both men were in their early 20s. Forrest admitted that the three of them really wanted to go to Denver from Fort Worth, Texas. The only problem with that desire was that none of them had a car, and they didn't have much money to finance their trip either. It was unclear if they were going to Denver to start a new life, or just to have a wild few days before returning to Texas. They decided that the best way to get to Denver would be to steal a car and take off. Forrest said he really didn't want to do it, but agreed to, probably because the other two men involved were a lot older than him. So, the three of them sat by the side of the road and waited for someone with a, quote, good-looking car to drive by. Unfortunately, that man happened to be James McNeil. Since driving was his livelihood, he had a nice seven-passenger car, and he liked to keep it looking good. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon bright daylight when they encountered McNeil. It wasn't someone they knew, and they didn't remember ever seeing him around before either. When James drove by, the three men flagged him down and asked for a ride. He agreed, and the three climbed into the car. Forrest climbed into the back seat with Cecil Jensen, who sat directly behind James, while Wayne Todd got into the front seat. Cecil Jensen had an 18-inch long half an inch wide iron pipe hidden just out of sight. The boys told James that they were on their way to Alito, but after driving for a few miles, James told them he was going to drop them off because he was going to take an old road around to Fort Worth. The boys told him they'd just head to Fort Worth with him, and Forrest said he thought James seemed a little suspicious after that, and he wondered if James thought they might be planning to rob him. But again, it was broad daylight, and James just kept driving. One of the guys kept trying to talk and make conversation while they drove, but Forrest said he kept quiet and didn't say anything. James was a careful driver and took all of the bumps very slowly. When the boys saw a ravine by the road not far away, they knew that James would slow down. It was their best spot to make their move. Then, suddenly, Cecil hit James over the head from behind with the iron pipe. But he didn't stop at one blow. He just kept swinging 
six or seven times, according to Forrest. James slumped over in the car, and the boys steered it to a stop. Then they dragged James out of the car. Forrest said they had a difficult time maneuvering him because his arms and legs were limp and kept bumping into things. James was groaning the entire time, still alive. They pulled him through a barbed wire fence and dropped him on the side of the road. That's when they robbed him and got a grand total of $37. Then the three of them ran back to the road to make their getaway. Forrest told the police that when they drove away from the scene of their crime, James was moaning and was clearly still alive. By this time, the sun was starting to go down a bit, and the boys decided to turn on the car's lights. Well, seeing the car in a new light, and having a moment to collect their thoughts, the three boys, slash men, realized there was blood on the car, and on the seat of the car. They pulled over next to a mud puddle and used the mud to try to wash the blood off the car. But, try as they might, they couldn't get the blood off the seats in the car, and all they ended up doing was smearing it around. Then, Forrest noticed that he had blood on his pants, too. His Palm Beach pants. He took them off and left them near the car. In all honesty, I think he meant to take them with him once he tried rinsing the blood off, but in all the craziness, he forgot to put them back on. Since they couldn't get the blood out of the car seat, the trio decided they'd better just ditch the car and forget the entire thing. So they left it where they'd pulled over by the mud, about four miles from where they'd left James, and then they took a train back to the town where they lived and hoped nobody would find out what they'd done. Except they read the newspaper the next day and found out that the man they attacked had died, and they knew they were in major trouble. After Forrest made his confession, he asked the police what kind of condition James's body was in. He wondered if he'd tried to walk or crawl away at all after they left. He also asked the police if James's family took his death hard and wondered if they'd had a funeral for him yet. When the cops told Forrest that the funeral had been held the previous Saturday, Forrest told them he would have liked to attend it. It seemed obvious from the boy's confession and questions that maybe he didn't quite understand the magnitude of what he'd been a part of. Remember, he was just 14 years old. But then, the next thing he told police was that the murder of James McNeil had messed up his marriage plans. Yes, the 14-year-old boy was supposed to have gotten a marriage license a couple of days after the killing. But he postponed it and he told the cops to let his father know that he was being held and that someone needed to contact his fiancée and let her know that, quote, everything would come out all right. When the cops arrested Cecil Jensen and Wayne Todd, Cecil claimed that it was Forrest who hit McNeil with the iron pipe and that he was the one that brought it. I'm not sure if they ever figured out the truth to that one. Fast forward two months to our additional history article on November 11, 1921, and if you remember the headline from when I started this story, it said that Todd was found guilty. Wayne Todd was the first of the three involved in the murder to have his trial. He was found guilty and given the death penalty. About a week later, Cecil Jensen had his trial. He was the one that, according to Forrest, actually killed James McNeil by hitting him with the pipe over and over. Cecil Jensen was found guilty too but he was not given the death penalty and instead was sentenced to 99 years behind bars. Of course, this didn't make Wayne Todd very happy since he, as an accomplice, was set to be hung. His lawyer immediately asked for a new trial 
and cited a few reasons. First, Todd's wife hadn't been allowed to testify the first time around, and she, as well as a neighbor, were willing to testify that he wasn't normal, and often wasn't of sound mind, meaning they thought there was something wrong with his sanity. But most importantly, their reasoning for a new trial was that during jury deliberations, one of the jurors supposedly told everyone that they couldn't end in a hung jury because it was too expensive of the state to have a retrial. Another juror basically said that if they gave him the death penalty, the governor could always overwrite it later if he wanted. And last but not least, Todd's defense team said that James McNeil's wife was allowed to sit in the courtroom and openly weep during the trial, and they believed her sorrow influenced the jury. Well, in Wayne Todd's case, the governor did step in, and just a few days before he was set to be hung, the governor had his sentence changed to life imprisonment instead of death. Forrest Dawson, the youngest of the three, got away with a much smaller sentence since he was still a minor. He was sentenced to spend six years in the boys' training school in Gatesville, Texas, although he only ended up serving about four and a half years before he was paroled. The years locked up didn't help reform him much, because just a few years later, when he was 23 years old, Forrest Dawson was found guilty of robbery and given a 10-year prison term. For Wayne Todd, fast forward to December of 1926, just five years into his sentence, and he received quite the Christmas present when the governor issued a full pardon to him and he was released from prison. Yep, he only served five years for his part in a pre-planned violent murder. But wait, folks, we're not done yet. Wayne Todd only made it a couple of years before getting in trouble again. In 1928, he was convicted of a cotton theft, and his pardon was revoked, and his life sentence for murder reinstated. But in 1932, he escaped from prison. It was his father that eventually drove him back to the prison to finish serving his term. So, what happened to Cecil Jensen? In 1925, he escaped from prison by sawing his way through the building. He was on the run for about two weeks before he was recaptured and sent back to prison. Then, in 1930, he escaped from prison again, and he was on the loose for a couple of weeks before he and another escape prisoner were caught while trying to break into a store. Some people just never learn. For my second additional history story, I found a newspaper in Oregon who was angry that their town didn't take the ceremony and two minutes of silence when the Tomb of the Unknown was dedicated more seriously. The editor of the paper shamed those who chose to go to a dance in the next city over rather than stay behind to participate in their own city's Armistice Day activities. And that same editor listed the names of people he knew to still be drinking moonshine. Another paper, this one in Nebraska, had the editor ranting and raving about how much money was being spent on education and schools. It was his opinion that people should stop being cowards and stop voting to put more money into educating children. It was funny, but not big enough for an additional history story. Instead, I decided to go with another tale of auto theft. Apparently, it was a very trendy crime back in the 1920s, because I see it in newspapers all the time. And many times, it was a violent act, like in the first story. But don't worry, in my opinion, this second story is kind of funny. 
I'm taking this additional history story from the Cleveland Star out of Shelby, North Carolina. The headline says, Officers Get Car and Four Thieves. This story begins in a town called Grover, North Carolina. There, five men stole a touring car from Mr. J.A. White, who lived in Gaffney, South Carolina. The men took off, headed on the back roads to Kings Mountain across the border in North Carolina. Along the way, the five men got into a fight. You see, the man who had come up with a plan to steal the car in the first place suddenly decided that, once they had the car, he didn't want the others involved anymore, and he was going to keep the car for himself. Obviously, the other four men didn't like that idea at all, and they mutinied. They pulled the car over to the side of the road, had a bit of a fight, and left the man who didn't want to work as a team anymore stranded on the side of the road. When the men hit Grover, which was just across the border in North Carolina, the police caught up with them. Now, I'm not sure when police cars became widely used, and maybe it took a long time for smaller departments to get them, but in order for the police to pursue the men, they had to first secure a vehicle. They managed to find one in the Cash Mills area, not far from where the robbery happened in South Carolina. The police officers took off after the thieves, knowing which way they were heading, but the police officers didn't make it very far. Just a few minutes after they started their pursuit, the car malfunctioned, and they had to leave it on the side of the road. Another car came along, and the police commandeered it, near Blacksburg, still in South Carolina, and they took off on their chase once more. But, unfortunately, the lights on the second car they'd commandeered stopped working, and they couldn't see anything. They had to stop and find another car before they even got out of the town of Blacksburg. They did secure one, and away they went, in vehicle number three. The police chief in Blacksburg decided to join them, and now they had more people to help. When the car full of cops got to Grover, which again is across the border in North Carolina, you'll never believe what happened. Yep, the car broke down again. In just a few miles, they'd managed to break three different vehicles, and had to find a fourth one to keep chasing down the men who'd stolen J.A. White's car. Finally, after all of their struggles and driving that fourth car, the policeman limped into King's Mountain, the destination of the car thieves. By the time they arrived, the King's Mountain police had caught on to what was happening and had already found and arrested all four of the men driving the stolen vehicle. Surprisingly, even with all the car troubles they had, they'd only arrived 15 minutes after the thieves. Nowadays, car chases cover a lot of ground in a very short amount of time. But back in 1921, speeds weren't nearly what they are now. For example, a 1920 Model T Ford had a high speed of just 28 miles per hour. The entire chase from Gaffney to Kings Mountain was less than 30 miles, which makes it even funnier that the cops went through four different vehicles in that short of distance. Well, after the cops got to Kings Mountain, they thanked the officers there for arresting their fugitives, and then all of the cops and all four thieves piled into Mr. J.A. White's touring car. I'm sure that was cozy, and they drove together back to Gaffney. Somehow they managed to make the return trip using just the one vehicle.
for my last additional history story of the day. I'm taking a headline from the Owensboro Messenger out of Owensboro, Kentucky. This headline says, Most Beautiful Girl in United States. Then accompanying the headline is a picture of a woman named Edith May Patterson. The year 1921 was the first year that the Miss America pageant was held. But that's not what contest Edith May Patterson won. You see, beauty pageants were all the rage in 1921, and there were at least nine different contests hosted by newspapers and others across the nation that year. The first Miss America, Margaret Gorman, was crowned in September. Edith May earned her title of prettiest in the United States just a handful of weeks later. Edith May Watson was 19 years old, and she was from and lived in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. She worked as a schoolteacher there. The contest she won started out as a photo contest rather than a pageant, and Edith didn't even send in her own photo. Instead, it was her aunt that saw an ad for the contest in the St. Louis Globe Democrat and decided to send in her niece's picture. The girl's height and weight, bust size and hip size, and a million other things needed to be on the application. And since the aunt didn't know... She just made some up and tried to be as accurate as possible. Well, Edith May was surprised and a bit excited when she was chosen to be one of the finalists in the contest and got to go on an all-expenses-paid trip to St. Louis and win $1,000. In today's money, that would be like winning $15,000. It was a big deal. When she left Arkansas for St. Louis, more than 300 people and a band came to see her off. Edith spent a week in St. Louis with the other couple of finalists, and everything they did and everywhere they went was filmed. While there, the judges interviewed her and made her stand on a chair and turn around and walk and talk, but she just wore her normal clothes. There were no swimsuits or anything like that involved, but she did get a nice new wardrobe out of the deal. When Edith returned to Pine Bluff, Arkansas, another crowd was there to greet her, and she was honored at all kinds of events. She even got to be the one who christened the new dam in the area. Shortly after her return, she found out that she'd been chosen the winner of the contest, but she only found that out by reading the newspaper when she got home. Suddenly, she was an overnight celebrity. One source said, quote, Like a modern Miss America, she had evening gowns, fur coats, and jewelry, and was sent on a whirlwind tour of points north and east to advertise products. And the appearances, in person, on radio, in newsreels, had only just begun. There were far too many for me to keep on typing. So, what happened to Edith after her celebrity status wore off? Well, she stopped teaching, got married, and became a well-known pastor in Arkansas. No more beauty pageants for Edith May. For today's advertisement, I'm taking an ad from the Miami News out of Miami, Florida. This ad is for The Mastermind. The Mastermind is billed as one of the world's most distinguished psychic mediums and real-life readers. The Mastermind claimed their reputation was known worldwide, and they'd even be able to name the caller's name as well as the names of their family members if asked. The Mastermind also said that they could advise anyone on such things as 
business, investments, divorce, or how to get reunited with your spouse or a long-lost friend. It said there was no heartache or sorrow so deep that the mastermind couldn't help you with. In case you were worried about being scammed, the mastermind wouldn't charge you unless you were completely satisfied with what you learned from them in your half-hour session. The mastermind ends the ad by instructing people to cut the ad out of newspapers so they wouldn't forget the contact information, and ended with their business address. From the ad and the picture, I couldn't tell if the mastermind was a man or a woman. I'll let you decide. Friends, thank you so much for sticking with me the last year and a half that I've been doing this podcast. I've had a blast doing all 100 episodes. If you're celebrating this week, I wish you the merriest and safest of holidays. For my Christmas present to you, I'm going to post a new, fun, random clipping episode this Thursday. Then I'll be back next Monday with an all-new full-size episode. Talk to you later.